Lord God, uh, I am so thankful for the privilege I've had to lead this ministry and to continue to lead this ministry into the summer, and I pray that, that I, I would do so faithfully, and I pray that together, as a leadership team and as a young adults community, that we would do so faithfully as we see this ministry transition, and it's our prayer that you would continue to grow this ministry and that we would see community at this church and in, and in Abbotsford and all around here continue to flourish through it. Would, would you bless it, we pray. Continue to bless it. Pray that you would continue to bless Apologetics Canada, bless, bless my family as we take this step of faith, Lord. We know that you're good and we know that you're leading us and it's our desire to follow you. Tonight, this is also our prayer as we come to the scriptures. Lord, as we open up your word, Pray that we would take a step of faith to listen to you, to trust you, and to go as you lead and guide and as you convict us tonight. Lord, we want to hear from you. Pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen. So listen, we're in this new sermon series that I'm uh, looking forward to. It's called Delete Eight Verses I Wish Were Not in the Bible. And maybe some of you can relate with this. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you're reading through the Bible. Oh, you already see my sermon title there for the for the love of bacon please delete deuteronomy chapter 14 I'll, I'll come to this in a moment but maybe you've had that moment right where you're reading the bible and you come to this part of scripture that you either don't understand or it's a hard word or it's just weird and you're just like man i really wish that that just wasn't there and i didn't have to worry about that and so for some people they'll skip over books like Leviticus or Deuteronomy, because they're just not even sure, what am I supposed to do with that? Particularly a verse like this, the verse that I've chose tonight that I want to look at, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 8, which tells us that the pig is also unclean. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says that there's a whole list of things that are unclean, and the pig is one of those, and although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud and you're not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. And I read that verse and I thought, Lord, no, right? I love bacon, Lord. Some of you can, uh, can appreciate this. I'm sure that there are some fellow bacon lovers out there. That's what I'm talking about. See, one of the things that I realized is that bacon is magical. You take bacon and you can wrap anything in bacon and it becomes glorious. I remember this with my grandma. She would wrap chicken in bacon. And, and I thought, you know, chicken's good, but chicken wrapped in bacon is magical. I, uh, I, I learned just how magical bacon is. Uh, in fact, recently with a group of young adults, there were 10 of us that went to Ireland together just traveling around. And I've never been a big fan of meatloaf. My mom made meatloaf growing up, and it was disgusting. If you've never had meatloaf, it's just meat and oats clumped together, and baked. And I thought, nothing good can come of meatloaf, but then we're in Ireland, and they did something magical with meatloaf, right? The, the Irish get it. You take meatloaf, you wrap it in bacon, magical. And, uh, and sure enough, it was magical. And more than that, I mean, they even could make the potato good, right? You take a potato, you open it up, and you shove a bunch of bacon into it. It's glorious. And so you come across like a verse like this, and you're like, I'm not sure what to do about that because I love bacon, and this verse is telling me that I shouldn't eat bacon. What do I do about that? And it's interesting how it kind of leads to you and I picking and choosing what we're going to do about the verses that we read, especially these sorts of verses that we're quite unsure about. 
I saw this like perfectly illustrated a few years ago when I read a book. I think we have uh, the book cover here for you. The book was called My Year of Living Biblically. It's right there. So this guy, A.J. Jacobs, uh, is not a Christian. In fact, he calls himself a Jew, but he says, listen, I'm the kind of Jew in the sense that the Olive Garden is Italian, he says. Like, that's how Jewish I am. And, and he says that because, listen, although I'm Jewish in heritage, he says, I, I've, like, I'm not a practicing Jew. I've never read the Bible. So he decides that he would read the Bible, but more than reading the Bible, that he would read the Bible and that he would write down every law that he could find in the Bible, and he would follow that law. And as he read through the Bible, he found that there were over 700 laws in the Bible. So he meticulously wrote them all down and then proceeded to seek to follow those, such as not eating bacon or other laws like not mixing fibers, which led him to wearing some very unusual clothes. He stopped working on Saturdays and he stopped um, doing a, a, a whole number of things that, that were in these laws, some of them uh, quite bizarre and some of them that, uh, that were actually quite difficult to practice, but he still tried his best. And this was one of the funniest parts in the book, actually, is he, there was a, there's the law that, that you are to stone adulterers. And he thought, how am I going to, to do this one? <laughs> and one day, one day he's out at the park in New York and a guy sees how oddly he's dressed because he, not only is he dressed weird, but there's a verse that says, don't, don't cut the sides of your beard. So he grew his beard out. And, he, and he's looking quite strange, and this guy comes up to him and says, why are you, why are you dressed like that? And, he's, and he explains to him his project, where I'm living biblically for a year. And the guy goes, well, that's quite interesting. And then in the midst of the conversation, it comes up that he needs to stone an adulterer. And this guy says, listen, I'm an adulterer. <laughs> and Jacobs is like, this is perfect. Can I stone you? you know? And he goes down, and he starts picking up some stone, these little pebbles. And the guy's like, don't you dare. Don't you dare throw those at me. And he's like, listen, just a couple, right? And the, and, the, and the guy's getting quite upset, and he goes over, he grabs these pebbles from him, and he throws them in his face, and this guy's like, okay, now it's on, right? And he's like tossing these pebbles on, and the guy's furious, and he starts booking it out through the park. He's like, finally, I, I was able to follow that law. And a whole lot of other laws. And one of the things, though, that was interesting and sad about the book is his reflections at the end of all of it. His reflections at the end of all of it is that he saw that the Bible was something that you should not take literally. He said you shouldn't take the Bible literally, and he decided that because you can't follow the whole Bible. You can't, you can't follow this Bible with all these weird laws. It just doesn't work. And so what you should do, this is his conclusion, you should just pick and choose which laws work for you because he found that some of them were good like he liked not working on Saturdays and found that he was a workaholic and it allowed him to have more time with his family so he chose that law but he liked bacon so he got rid of that law right and there was a whole list of others and this is how he ultimately concluded his project and I think, though, that if you and I were honest, I think in some ways this is kind of how we've come at Christianity. 
we kind of pick and choose which laws we're going to follow and which laws we're not going to follow. And there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it. But sometimes we'll try to make up a reason. So, for example, me growing up, uh, see, as many of you know my testimony, my mom came to faith in Jesus. I, I witnessed that happen, and I witnessed my mom trying to understand the Bible. I witnessed my mom reading the Bible and her coming across verses like in Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14, don't eat pork. And so uh, maybe some of you have heard this before in churches. This is often talked about. We'll come up with these ideas like this. And this is what was told to me as a kid. Listen, Andy, we can eat bacon. And the reason that we can eat bacon is because God in his wisdom and his sovereignty, he knew that pigs were dirty animals and that they had lots of parasites and diseases. And so God told us not to eat pigs, told the Jews not to eat pigs, because that would be more hygienic for them. But now we've got better farming practices, we've got better cooking habits, so now it's okay to eat bacon. Now the interesting part about doing this is we don't apply this in the, for all of these other laws. Like there's other laws such as the Sabbath, don't work on the Sabbath on Saturday. So then what do I do with that one? Is it, it, so I, I'm going to choose some and not choose others. Uh, but then if I'm going to say this is the reason not to follow this, I mean, does it apply in these other ways? And I clearly have no problems mixing fiber, but I don't know that there's any good reason why I shouldn't mix fibers. And quite quickly, you get confused. And the Old Testament, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy, begin to not make a whole lot of sense. And one of the problems that I see, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk on this scripture, because this is more than about my love of bacon, okay? What I wanted to talk about this is because I want to help you to understand the Bible better today. And so we're going to actually go through a number of verses as we understand what's happening here. But before we do, I just, I just want to make this comment about how it's so important for you and I to understand the Bible correctly. You know, we've been doing the Apologetics Canada Conference for 10 years, and do you know the most controversial thing that we have ever had said from the front that, got, that elicited the most reaction, negative reaction, and people being upset was a good friend of mine named Paul Copan, who's the head of the philosophical, the Evangelical Philosophical Society. He's as orthodox as they come. A godly man up on the stage here says... Don't take the Bible literally, take the Bible literarily. And people were up in arms. What? You mean I'm not supposed to take the Bible literally? And the answer to that is yes, because you don't take any document literally. You always take it literarily. And the reason for that is quite simple. It's because we often will use things like metaphor, such as Jesus telling us he's a door. He says it a lot. But we know he's not actually a door. It's a metaphor, meaning something quite significant. And so you start to realize then that if you want to take something literally, and I think a better word is actually, maybe we should say seriously. If you want to take it seriously, you need to take it literarily. And by that, you need to understand what's being communicated. And to do that means you need to see the whole of it, especially if you're going to make sense of Old Testament laws. You need to see the bigger picture of what is taking place. And so 
that's what I want to do tonight. Is I want to begin to show you the bigger picture, and I want to help make sense of these Old Testament laws that at one point you would want to delete. But I think after you and I look at this tonight, you'll begin to see that this is actually something quite cool of what God's doing, and isn't something to be deleted, it's something to be celebrated. So if you have your Bible, turn with me. I want to jump into uh, Deuteronomy. And I want to jump into Deuteronomy chapter um, 14. Um, no, that's not where I want to jump into. I'm looking at that going, that is not right. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 14 is the, the verses about not eating uh, bacon. Don't eat pig. We're looking at Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 6. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where I want to look. But first, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, you begin to see why the Old Testament law was given to the Jews. So we see this in, in verse 5, we read that Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declared to you, to you uh, in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. And what, what Moses begins to explain to them is, listen, this is a covenant that God is making with you, a people that he, that it's the same people, but all the way back to Abraham, right? All the way back to Adam and Eve. It's the same people, but God is doing something unique here. You were enslaved in Egypt. God rescued you from Egypt, and now he is using you as his people as a demonstration to the nations. And he's going to begin to explain this as they are going to become his people. And now there are Five, I, I've put together five main um, aspects of the law that God is, is, is using the law through the Jewish people. And as uh, Moses first gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter, six, chapter 5, we go over into chapter 6 and we begin to see what these reasons are even in more detail. So he says... These are the commands and decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live uh, by keeping all of these decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And so what you begin to see as we read through this is there are these five major ideas. The first major idea is you should follow these laws because it's going to lead to your prospering. It's going to lead to your flourishing. A second one is that you should follow these laws because these laws are a foreshadowing of what is to come. And this is something, as we read other verses, we'll see repeated, and you see repeated throughout the Bible, uh, particularly this idea that in foreshadowing in literature, we know that it has an immediate application, but that it's also pointing to an application to come. And so on the one hand, we see that the Jews are to follow this law because they're going to inherit this land, but we begin to see as we continue to read the story that they're going to inherit a greater land. They're going to inherit God's land. 
in which they will have this relationship with God. And this is a key idea of the law that you see throughout the Bible is that God gives the Jews this law that they might remember. That, that this is something that they would do, and I'm going to read in a moment here, uh, that really emphasizes this point that, that God wants to, them to remember what he has done for them and done for their ancestors and what he's going to continue to do, that he will be faithful to what he's promised. This also leads to two, two final ones. One is, is that this also then begins to set the Jewish nation apart from the other nations. This is Yahweh's people, and Yahweh's people behave differently. They look differently, and God begins to use this nation to be able to speak through them to all of the nations. And one of the major ways that the law does that is through conviction. This law becomes a burden on the people, a burden that begins to show them their need for a Savior. You see, one of the things that's interesting about laws is that if you and I were a bunch of robots, you and I know that you can program a computer or a robot with 700 laws and a whole lot more than that, and it will follow every single one of those laws. It won't get it wrong. But what the Jewish nation began to realize is that God gives them these laws, some of them are moral laws, such as the Ten Commandments, and others are ceremonial laws, like don't mix fibers, uh, keep the Sabbath holy, um, don't eat bacon, right? And, and yet they can't get either of them right. And it becomes this weight that becomes a bear on them that begin to realize that they're in need of help. But notice what is said here then in, in chapter 6, and really pressing this idea of remember. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, is verse 4, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. You know, one of the challenges with the Jewish nation is that they took this quite literally. They... Um, they take leather boxes and they actually write out that verse onto these uh, parchments and they put them in the leather box and they wrap that leather box around their forehead. If you've ever seen uh, an Orthodox Jew, they still do this to today. It's called a phylactery. They also wrap them uh, on their arms. They will put these on their, on their doors. The idea is to remember, but the problem is, is it becomes these laws that they seek to do to try to earn God's favor. And so they'll try to do these laws to an ever-increasing degree in hopes that they, can, that they can earn God's love. And what they begin to realize is, is, is they, they confuse this law for God's love. They, they confuse what God is doing through the nations, even though God is continually trying to teach them and direct them and using them as an instrument to instruct the nations, they get confused. Jesus comes on the scene, and if you have your, uh, you got your finger in uh, Deuteronomy, jump over to Matthew. I'm going to jump over into the, the New Testament. Jesus begins to teach in the New Testament with regards to the law and begins to instruct them. And his instruction is, is uh, 
is harsh. Chapter 5, verse 17, this is a famous sermon on the mountain. Jesus comes and he says, listen, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus wants them to understand right off the get-go, listen, I, I've not come to abolish this law. He says, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one or of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, now listen to this, because what he's going to say next would have been unbelievable for his audience to hear. Because these laws, these 700 laws, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, they worked incredibly hard to follow those laws as well as they could. This often was called their yoke. A yoke was a device that was put on cattle so that, or oxes so that they could carry a heavy burden. And a Pharisee or a teacher of the law, their yoke was their interpretation of all those laws and of how they would just pile on um, more and more nuance to those laws to make that yoke even harder again, this idea of earning God's favor, this idea of trying to win God's love. And, and Jesus says this, verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine that audience at that time hearing that? Knowing how diligent these Pharisees were and how they had dedicated their life to following these 700 laws and they would go to extremes to follow this law and Jesus is saying that you've got to do better than that if you think that you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. People are thinking to themselves, well then who can? Who can make it if that's the standard? And the point is, no one can make it. You are not good enough. It's, it was the point of the law was to show you it was this burden, this conviction that you are in need of help. And in fact, Jesus doubles down on this. Something that we forget, we don't really appreciate is he continues in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes even harder. He goes, listen, you know, you got the Pharisees that are trying really hard at the ceremonial laws and they're not mixing fibers and they're not eating bacon and they're not doing anything on the Sabbath. But Jesus goes, what about those moral laws? And Jesus says, listen, you've heard that it said don't murder. That's not too difficult. But Jesus takes it another step farther and he says, but I tell you that if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. Jesus says, listen, this law is more than just about your outward actions. Jesus begins to point inward in them and say, listen, it, it's, it's even about your thoughts. Do you have thoughts about anger or hatred? Do you have thoughts about adultery? Do you have thoughts about divorce or oaths or hating people? What's going on inside your heart, Jesus is saying? Because that will condemn you as well. And you can again imagine the weight that would be on these people. Who can make it? No one. But then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What is that yoke? The law. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can begin to imagine, you're like, what do you mean that your yoke is easy and your burden is light? You just took the Pharisees' interpretation of law and you just ran with it farther than we've ever seen anybody take it. And the point being is that you and I are in desperate need of help. That we need Jesus' help. See, when you read the whole story, not just parachuting into Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 8, don't eat bacon. Like, when you, when you take into account the whole story, what you find is a story that begins the same way it ends. It's a story about God loving people creating them for relationship with him and with each other. It's a story about how sin separates us from God and sin separates us from one another. It's a story about how God began to reconcile our relationship with him and with one another. And in doing so, he needed to show us that we were in need of reconciliation. He needed to see the depths of our help, our need for help that would be fulfilled in him. In Matthew 22, verse 34, Jesus explains this when he says, uh, we read this, that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And what does Jesus reply? Well, he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice what he says here. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Why is that? Again, because the story ends the same way it began. This is what God was doing in the very beginning. It was about your relationship with God and your relationship with one another. It was about living in right relationship. It was about reconciling a relationship that has been broken between us and God and us and one another. And God used the Jewish people to begin to show us how he was going to reconcile that relationship. And that the reality was is that we are unable to reconcile that relationship. That we are not good and we are in need of someone who is. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way. I'm in Hebrews 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Now notice what he says here. But those sacrifices that was a part of the Jewish law, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The law could never save you. All it could do was show you that you were in need of saving. And the question becomes, well, how are we saved then? And Paul gets into this in Romans 
told you we're going to jump into a couple verses here. Romans chapter 10. If you want to jump over there, I'm in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, and look at uh, Romans 10, 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why Paul's writing the book of Romans is he's so worried about his Jewish brothers and sisters that are not putting their trust in Jesus. Testify about them that they are, uh, he says, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They thought that they could earn their way. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What we couldn't accomplish, Jesus accomplished in our place. And then Paul says, jumping down to verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who came uh, who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, there's going to come in your, a point in your life where you're going to need to realize that you're not good, but Jesus is. And that what you couldn't do, he did on your behalf. You couldn't mend the brokenness between you and God, but he can and he did in your place so that through him, by placing your trust in him, you can be made right before God and you can experience the kind of life that God intended you to experience. And that as God begins to work in you, you can begin to mend your relationships with one another. Now, I want to get into this, but before I do, there's uh, an interesting verse that I want to show you in Romans chapter 7, where Paul begins to put a bow on all this um, with regards to the law. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, we read, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who has raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, and by the way, remember, baptism is just that. It's a symbol of going from death unto life. The, the old is gone, 
and the new has come. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way, the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Through Christ you have died to the law. The law now has no say on you. You do not need to follow the law. You do not need to follow the... uh, Now this is interesting as we're going to parse this out. What does it look like to not have to follow the law, but instead follow this new way by the Spirit? I want to begin to get into that because it means then that you can eat bacon. Praise Jesus. Literally, praise Jesus. Come on. It means that you can, you can go to work on Saturday. You can go to the park on a Saturday. You can mix fibers. You can even get the percentage of spandex in your fibers that Daniel Markin has. Like, that's acceptable. <laughs> I got him. Daniel, listen, I'm a little worried about the percentage of spandex these days in your fibers. All right. But you can do that. Why? Because you're no longer under the law. You are under a new law. You are now living by the Spirit. God now lives in you and begins to direct you. And that means something quite interesting. It means that although you can eat bacon, there may be at times that you don't eat bacon. It means that there are times in your life that you might use your freedom in a way that might be surprising. So I, I want to I show you how this looks. Before we uh, get too deep into that, I just first want to jump over to what it looks like to live by the Spirit. So jump over to Galatians chapter 5. Paul talks about what this looks like, and I'm going to look at verse 13. And he says, you brothers and sisters were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So listen, you're no longer bound by the law, so you're free. But he's like, but watch what you're going to do with that freedom. Rather serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out that you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And Paul begins to explain what, looks, what it looks like to follow the sinful desires of the flesh. He says it looks like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like that will not enter inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly, somebody that lives that way does not have the Spirit of God living in and through them because God would not lead you to live that kind of life. How would God lead you to live? God would lead you back to the whole idea at the beginning that you would live in a way that loves God and that loves people. This is what it looks like to be, to be led by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, joy... Uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. There has never been a law in the history of the world that says, listen, stop being kind. Stop being so good. Like, we've never found a culture that's like, would you just stop being so self-controlled and faithful? 
Stop it with the kindness, right? There's no law against those things. We all know that that's good. That those are the ways that we should live. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have, been cru- have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoked, and envy each other. So then, as I just wrap this up, I just want to be very clear how this looks. And I want to use an example in a moment. Um, but before I do that, let me just give you just an example from my own life. What about drinking alcohol? You know, when I first became a Christian, I thought to myself, man, what God wants from me is to follow laws because then God will love me because God is all about all these laws. So I decided I'm not going to drink any alcohol. I'm not even going to touch alcohol. And literally, I didn't. I, I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't touch it. But my roommate in college drank alcohol, and he knew that I wouldn't even touch alcohol. So he would put alcohol in our fridge and position it in ways I'd need to touch it to move it to get to other things just because he wanted to annoy me. Right? Like, that's how, that's how much of a Pharisee I'd become because I didn't understand what God was actually all about. I didn't understand what Jesus had come and done. And when I did, I began to realize, you are free, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to drink alcohol. You are. But Paul is saying, listen, when God lives in you and through you, he's going to guide you in that. And listen, I want to challenge you on this because I think there's some of you that have used your freedom and you've abused your freedom. Although you're free to, use, to drink alcohol, you're not free to, to, to head off into debauchery, into, into um, drunkenness. The Spirit of God living in you and through you is not going to lead you in that way. And I pray that if you know you're being convicted in that, you, you need to, to meet with the Lord on that. Maybe you need to put some boundaries in your life. Maybe you need to limit yourself to one glass of wine. Or you need to limit yourself to one beer or whatever it is that you know that you need to show some self-control. Yeah, you're free to do that, but how are you using that freedom? This means for me that there are times that I don't drink alcohol. For example, I have a friend who spent 15 years in addiction, and, and he, his name's Chris. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. Some of you know him. And I, I, whenever I'm with Chris, if I'm out for dinner with Chris, normally I would maybe order wine with my wife. I will not order wine when I am with Chris. Why? Am I free to order wine? Yes, you're free to order wine. But if the Spirit of God is living in you, is he going to lead you in that way? Is that what it looks like to love God and to love people? No, it doesn't. That's not the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It means then that sometimes I don't eat bacon because I have a niece that's a vegetarian and sometimes she's over for dinner and when she is, do you think I'm going to pull out a big old slab of bacon? No. Am I free to eat bacon? Yes, I am. God, thank you, Lord. Right? But am I going to abuse that privilege? No, because I want to be led by the Spirit of what it looks like um, to be faithful in that way. Here's another one. I was going to turn there, but I won't turn there because we're low on time. But here's another one. I know a lot of you like tattoos. And in, and in Leviticus 19, it says don't get tattoos. So what are you to do about that law? And I know some of you really like tattoos. Right? Tattoos are addictive. And uh, once you get one, you just find yourself getting more and more, whatever. All right. And, and the question becomes, well, can I get a tattoo? The Bible says don't not, you know, don't, you know, the Old Testament law says don't, don't get tattoos. You know, can you get a tattoo? Are you free? Yes, you are free to get a tattoo. 
It's interesting, though, when you read in Leviticus 19, it talks about not getting a tattoo, but it talks about it in ancestral, with regards to ancestral worship. It says don't cut yourself or get tattoos with regards to ancestral worship. What's happening there? It's talking about witchcraft. It's saying don't participate in witchcraft. Now, do you think that you should obey that law? Yeah, because if the Spirit of God is living in you, God is not going to lead you in a way that's not going to love him and not going to love people. But it means then, I mean, listen, can you get a tattoo that, that still honors God and still honors people? Yes. But there are times, though, that's going to challenge you. For example, when I was 18, I wanted to get a tattoo. I wanted to get a tattoo of a big dragon across my chest. That's a true story. But my mom said... Andy, would you just wait until you're 20 to get that tattoo? And listen, the Spirit of God in me was saying, Andy, honor your mom. Wait until you're 20, and then you get even a bigger. You'll have more money, right? You'll get a bigger dragon tattoo. I don't even know how that was possible, because I wanted one that was so big. And guess, guess what happened when I got 20? The 20. I didn't get my big dragon tattoo. Uh, now, the point being, though, if I wanted to get a tattoo, I still could have gotten that tattoo. But what does it look like when the Spirit of God lives in us and through us that God will lead us as we seek to love Him and we seek to love one another? This is the Spirit, this is the law of the Spirit that you and I live in, that you and I walk in. And as I, as I wrap this up now, as we come to communion in a moment here, the, the worship team's going to come up. I want to allow the Spirit of God that lives in you and through you to begin to convict you. Are there areas in your life that you have used your freedom or you have abused that freedom and you know that? You know that you've gone in directions that you shouldn't and that you need, that, you, that, God's, that God is calling you, listen, if you're going to love me, if you're going to love people, you need to get this area of your life under control. As we come to communion, this is an opportunity for those of us that have placed our trust in Jesus, that have a relationship with God through Jesus, that participate in this meal that reminds us that Jesus died for us and that through him we are reconciled with God. It's a moment then for us to, to reevaluate our relationship with God and say, Am I, is my relationship with God where it should be? Is the spirit of the Lord's leading me? Is it, am I where I should be going? Or is there, is there corrections in my life that I need to make? And as well, with regards to your relationship with one another, this is a, a meal of remembrance. It reminds us of what it's like to come around a dinner table and to spend time in fellowship. Is your relationship with one another where it should be? If you have a brother and sister in Christ that you know you need to mend, the Holy Spirit is, is working in you and convicting you and saying, listen, you need to make that relationship right. To the best of your ability, you need to make it right. Before you come up tonight, I want to encourage you to be meeting with the Lord to make sure that, that as God's convicting you that you're listening. But also as you come to know that he has set you free. You are free from the law. You, you, you don't have to and you can't earn God's love. God loves you. He loved you so much he died for you. And it's something that he has given to you. And that you walk in. And that you allow as God lives in and through you to guide you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we are so thankful that you love us. So thankful that you love us so much you died for us. And as we take this meal of remembrance, may we be mindful that you are good 
and that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that you are gentle and that we can, can live in you in, in freedom. God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for what you've done in our place. We're thankful for how much it costs. But God, now my prayer is, is that as we live out these, our lives, no longer bound by 700 rules, but as we live with you in us, guiding us, Lord, would we be mindful of your spirit's leading that we might live in a way that honors you, in a way that loves you and loves one another. Help us to do that to your glory and to our benefit.